0: Hello, friend. Carm Capriato, Remarkable Results Radio. episode 510. Hey, this episode is the fourth part of a wide-open panel I moderated last September 2019 at the ASA Illinois Annual Meeting. Now, in this episode, we talk about technician pay.
1: You've got to get that out of everybody across the shop except for the most entry-level people. (laughs) Exactly. Or the most advanced diagnostician Mm -hmm. who... To Jeremy's point, you fix that in the mix.
2: Exactly, right. But you wouldn't have but you wouldn't want a B level technician doing 40 hours or less consistently. Well, You'd expect wouldn't more. be able to keep them. Exactly.
0: Welcome aftermarketers to Remarkable Results Radio. Listen to learn just one thing from today's episode on your journey to remarkable results. Hey, Carm here, and I'm so proud to talk to you about Apex. Hey, I was there at Apex 2019, and it's in the record books now history. But I must say... Apex lived up to presenting leading-edge technology from suppliers, but also they did a great job of showcasing the emerging technology of tomorrow. They even had a video clip of one of our ADAS Academy shows playing in a loop. That was Academy episode 138, The Business Side of ADAS. You gotta listen to it. Now, you've got plenty of time to plan to be at Apex in 2020, November 3rd through the 5th. And big news this year, Repair Shop HQ will debut at Apex 2020. Hey, Apex, now more than Ever. Hey, We get new listeners every day, and if this is a first for you, welcome, and you've not gotten into the groove of the listening app, you need to go to my website, remarkableresults.biz slash listen. The listen page is also on the menu bar. Now, that page contains everything you'll want to know about subscribing to all three shows we produce for you each week. Now, that's Remarkable Results Radio, the Town Hall Academy, and For the Record, It's easy to download an app and subscribe. You'll find that all on that page. Now, you may actually have a podcast listening app already on your smart device, your smartphone. Just run my name and find the three shows and subscribe. You don't want to miss one episode. Hey, look for me at Vision 2020 again this year. Please stop by and say hello. The studio will be just outside the Expo Hall. Pick up a Tribe sticker and display it proudly. And look for my podcast alumni poster as a silent auction item for the TTEF scholarship. Hey, I was so, totally honored to moderate an all-day panel discussion at the ASA Illinois member meeting back in September 2019. I also gave my keynote speech. This was an exceptional panel that brought their A-game to play, and you're investing now in part four. Donnie Cipher's with me from Cypher Automotive and NASTAff, Jeremy O'Neill from Freedom Automotive and Advisor Fix. Danny Sanchez from Auto Shop Solutions. Sarah Frazier from Haas Performance Consulting. And Jim Silverman from ATI. Here's a bonus. Find a Town Hall Academy episode on paying our technicians $100,000 a year. It's Academy Episode 120. You'll love it. Find the show notes for this episode, remarkableresults.biz slash e510. Copy and paste the notes for your own meeting agenda. I hope you find the power in these audio workshops and take just one spark of an idea and implement it. Uh, as I said earlier, Jim Silverman has joined us. We have Jim Silverman, Danny Sanchez, Sarah Frazier, Donnie Seifer, Jeremy O'Neill. This afternoon, we're we're to talk about how do we pay our techs $100,000 a year. A couple of things that I, I want to mention is that there's an invisible paycheck that exists out there. So say, for example, you're paying a tech $50,000 a year, and there's a health care program in there, and there's the tax bases that you pay. There's a lot of great—and again— online pieces of software or forms that you can get so that you can actually list for your employee technician service advisor uh, exactly what the cost of their employment is to the company. It's called an invisible paycheck. And so at the end of the day, as we're talking about paying $100,000 and how we want to discuss how that could happen, uh, it still ends up becoming the total compensation package in an invisible paycheck. And, And I think one of the things that we have to think about in an industry as we are looking to pay more to our people is that it's not about what they spend. And what I want to encourage everyone to think about is that Ah, giving you the new money so they start buying toys and they get some debt going on. And it's really not about what they spend, but we have to help them understand is what they keep. So many that I've interviewed that share that thought say that they bring in some kind of Dave Ramsey training for their people to help them understand how to become debt free uh never forget that the service advisors are a key important thing, and we're talking about how to pay our techs $100,000 a year. I think we need to think about what our service advisors are earning. Every market is different. Uh, so I think you have to consider what the cost of living is in your particular market. $100,000 isn't the bell ringer number that I think we all should strive for. I think we have to think about uh, the total comp in the marketplace, the profitability of your company. Bing, 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 bing. Isn't that the truth? You can't do this if you're not making money. And I'm sure we're going to kind of talk about that. You know, where and how do I start? Well, it starts with really growing a double-digit net operating income uh, building. And there may be some owners in this room that says, I'm not earning 100000 How the hell am I going to do this? Well, there's a bunch of magical ways. Remember the bonus that I put up in my keynote? Hire a business coach. Well, all the magic then will start happening, especially if you know that you need help in in walking you down that aisle. So uh, as we have discussed with our panel uh, about what they'd love to talk about and how they'd like to present their side of the issue of paying techs $100,000 a year, Jeremy sent us or talked about a formula that he has. Uh, for earning $100,000 a year based on one hour of production. So uh, even though we don't have the big spreadsheets and the signs up here, can you walk us through that?
3: Well, I could tell I heard Noah speak this morning, and now my formula is completely decimated because of overtime laws. Okay, we'll ask the next question. <laughs>
0: no, I'm just joking. Where's Noah when we okay, need so, him?
3: So at $100,000 a year, what is the hourly rate that a technician would earn that we'd have to pay them to make a dollars k a year on their W-2? Does anybody know? Pretty close, 4808 or 4807. So if you do 100,000 divided by 52 weeks, it's 1,900 a week. Divided by 40 comes out to 4808. So that's the number. Now, here's the challenge How many of you would pay a technician 48 bucks an hour salary for 40 hours of work per week? Nobody? Not even a good diagnostic guy? Is any, I got to be careful with antitrust laws, but $30 an hour? Okay so here 's the challenge <clears throat> One, and I love this topic. One of the things that i 've seen is as an independent repair shop owner it's very hard for me to compete with some of the larger corporations that are pulling talent out of the trade schools and out of schools. So if I have a diesel tech unless, I'm in a diesel area, so we work on a lot of you know Ford's and Cummins and all that. If I want to hire a diesel tech, i 'm competing with the Penskes of the world so can Freedom Auto Repair deliver a benefit package that is better than going to work for Penske, yes or no? Right now, I can't. It's pretty hard. So I'll lose the really top talent to the Penske's of the world. Why? Who's paying a higher rate? The pay may be the same, but what are the benefits at Penske? Well, if a technician's looking at going to work at Penske, and he's got a 401K, and he does the math for 30 years— He can retire with Penske in 30 years, but if I don't have a really good 401k plan that can match that, where's he going to go? Where's the top talent going to go? Okay, so now I I did this. So if we're going to pay our tech 48 hours a week, what is the actual cost to make that happen? So there's a couple ways we can go. We can put them on salary. We can put them on flat rate. So if we do flat rate, here's the thing that we have to account for as shop owners, what is the actual production your technician's going to produce? Has anybody had a technician that only produced 25 hours in a week? Raise your hand. Okay. Just so you know, if you're going to guarantee that technician $100,000 a year, the actual cost of that costs you $96 an hour. Loaded. It gets... Okay. So to pay 100000 a year, we've got to have a technician that's going to produce a minimum of 40 hours a week. That's going to be our baseline. So 40 hours a week, it's even. It's 48 bucks an hour. $48 an hour loaded is $60 an hour is what it actually costs you to pay that technician $100,000 a year. What does your labor rate need to be to generate a 70% GP paying 60 bucks an hour? I'm glad you asked. $200.32 an hour. That's what I was going to say.
0: The question was, what do you consider loaded?
3: Yeah, so what do I consider? I just added 25% to loaded in for taxes and all that stuff. And it can go higher. Like in California, it's 4,000%. Oh
4: <laughs>
3: yeah, that was a joke. <laughs> what, what happens in the real world is this. At the dealership, I had technicians that would flag 60 to 80 hours a week consistently. But we had the right car mix. We had the right flow of cars. We showed up every day with 80 cars in the bay. <laughs> We could pick and choose what we wanted to work on, and it was easy to generate that work. What I'm finding with my shop now, with the independent, is the work is scattered, right? It's all over the place. Uh, Technician A might get the right mix of work, and he might knock out 60 hours. Well, next week, he doesn't get the right mix of work, so now he comes back and does 28 hours. So here's the challenge. It's really tough to consistently perform at 50 and 60 hours a week as an independent technician. Matt Fanzlow says it so well. One of my favorite quotes from Matt is this. He says, the problem with our technician problem right now is this, as shop owners, we expect the technician to be smart enough to fix today's cars, but be dumb enough to accept our pay plans. So let that sink in for a little bit, because when I heard that, it really resonated with me. We expect our techs to be smart enough to fix today's cars, but dumb enough to accept our compensation plans. And this is a technician saying this. So if we're going to change, we have the power to do it. Number one, we have to be willing to charge a fair price for the customer and for the business. $200 an hour is not unreasonable today. The customers are going to challenge commodity pricing, but I hope you understand your labor force is a unique force that nobody can duplicate. I can't give Donnie's, I can't give my customers what Donnie has in his shop. I can't duplicate his technicians. He can't give his customers my technicians, can he? So the one thing that is unique to every single shop is the labor force. The specialized knowledge, skill, and expertise that your team has is very valuable, and we should charge accordingly. So I'm going to predict that my shop in the next two years will be at that level. Because I want my technicians to earn this type of money. I want to attract that level of of talent. So based on your profit targets, you can calculate what you have to charge to get that money. So there's no wonder why so many shops are breaking even and barely holding on. Because they think that their $105 an hour labor rate is too expensive for my area. Bullshit. I'm sorry. I'm just going to say it. It doesn't matter what your competition charges. It matters what you can carve out in your market and charge a fair price for for the service that you're providing
0: who has fear of raising their labor rates tomorrow be honest who has a fear of doing it that you're going to lose customers there's a few there's a nobody wants to raise their hand but there's a few i see a few nods going on i can't remember who said it to me that fear is false evidence appearing real maybe it was you jay who said that to me once and that I keep hearing about the fear factor. And then I ask guys questions. So what happens when you raised it? Nothing, nothing, nothing. Nothing. I didn't sleep for two days and nothing happened. And you know what? We are undervaluing ourselves. And there is only one way. I, and it, 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 Let the coaches speak here. We've got to we've got to move our labor rate in the right direction and are not operating income in the right direction. Uh, Jim, being a coach, do you agree with that? There's a lot of factors, but say those are the two takeaways. They're pretty important. Okay, thank you. And we can get into that in a little bit. But, Jeremy, thank you. Do you have any more to, to tuck up yet on but that? You just
3: you one last thought. Yeah. So when you have an underperforming tech, here's the cost. If you're going to pay that technician 100000 a year, if he produces 25 hours that week, that costs you $320 per hour to provide that paycheck to him. And I've gone back in the two and a half years and I've been like, well, that's why I didn't make any money that week. So it all ties together. The production is key. Actual timer repairs is key. We have to make sure that we're not stuck in the dogmatic process that the labor guide is the Bible and we can only charge what's in the book. That even though a customer goes to YouTube and they see a video that says, well, take the gas pedal out and pull the, well, great, that's a, that's a shortcut, our prices are fair for you and for the business. If we don't generate a fair profit, we're not going to be able to stand behind our warranty because we won't be here in three years. So our prices are fair for you and for the business. That's what it's going to cost. And every business has unique cost. So look at the costs. And I, the reason I break down in the hourly rate is because it's one thing that the service writer can control when they're quoting. So if you go to a 20 group meeting and you're looking at your numbers from June and we say, hey, You didn't generate enough profit. Here's what we're going to do. On Monday, you're going to have your team call every customer that came in in June and ask them for their credit card and that you need to run a charge of $49.75 because that's how short you were on every ticket. How many customers would pay that $50 bill? None. They'd hang up on you, right? They wouldn't even answer the phone. But that's what we expect to do. We look at numbers that are 60, 90 days old and expect to change something. You can't. You can't go back and change your profit statement from June. What you can change is your sales and your profitability for September. You can change what happens next week. You can change what happens in October and your service writer holds the key when they're estimating the ticket. Are they using the right labor rate? Are they doing it enough? If I have a technician that is specialized and he can diagnose any car on the planet and he's only going to produce 25 hours a week, I'll charge $320 an hour for his service because he's worth it. And your car requires this specialist and that's the rate. Sign the estimate or not. Let's Jeremy
0: Jeremy brings up such a great point about the P&L. It's always a look backward, and if you see something that's not right and you ignore it, nothing will ever change in your business. You have to you have to look into the future and be proactive about making the changes that are necessary. One of the changes that's important in building a better business so that you can retain, pay and keep your key people is to drive the top line through marketing. Danny
2: Yes, you need to have a volume of clients that keep on coming in. There's no there's no question. And in the way you go about marketing your shop and making sure that you have a flow of people is incredibly important. Every auto repair shop out there right now if they are not doing some kind of active level of marketing to bring in new customers is actually dying. You're dying a slow death because you're losing clients at the rate of 3% a year regardless of how good you are and that's because of two things that you cannot stop. Number one is people move, don't they? Mm-hmm. You just can't stop that. And unfortunately, what we've been hearing about talking to the, y'all in uh, here in Illinois, there's too many there's too many people moving out of Illinois right now. And it may have been true before, but I guess it's not true at the moment. <clears throat> and the other thing that they do is die. They die. So nothing you can do and change about that. That's just the way you're losing clientele. So you you have to be bringing in more than three percent new all the time in order to keep on growing. And fortunately for the great shops, the shops are represented here and many of them out there, is you are doing a good job of getting repeat and referral business coming in. And your referral business absolutely should be your number one. No questions asked, it should beat every other marketing source that you have. But if your number two marketing source now isn't the internet, you're missing out on a huge opportunity because that's the way you're going to keep driving in new business and unfortunately, the internet is unbelievably complex. There isn't one thing that you could do that's going to change your destiny. You have to be doing a lot of different things. And it is just, un- unfortunately, too complicated to, to do yourselves. Um, look, we're, I'm a digital marketing agency company. I have actually one of the 10th largest agencies in North Carolina. And I'm telling you right now that we are barely holding the tiger by the tail. It's unbelievably complex. So, for you to be experts in your industry and mine is never going to happen. So, you're going to have to trust somebody with this. That being said, you want to grow some technicians to, to making $100,000? I've done it. I had two of them. They were absolute animals. And it was not easy to build a shop environment for them to be able to have that kind of opportunity. And there isn't one thing. I didn't, it wasn't that we were just good marketers and helped bringing in new people, it wasn't that we had a clean shop or we had, talk about lean processes. I mean, I had down to a science, the parts delivery process, including having the right places for parts to arrive when nobody was looking. I had places for the technicians to look and see where everything was happening without being involved. The dispatch system was down to a science. Everything, every move they made was pre-thought out to be able to make sure that they had the most opportunistic time to get the cars fixed and nothing got in their way. And I lived in lean for 20 years. I got really, really good at it and that's where the shop was so successful. But that was why they were able to make the kind of money they had the opportunity to do it. But funny enough, they work, technicians work differently. They're not all the same. I tell, I've told this story many, many times. It's just, it's, it's, it's amazing how people are different. One technician was as organized as they get. He would do he would go to do a water pump on a BMW or Chevy, it didn't matter. He would go to this box and he'd pull just the tools he needed for every tool or every nut and bolt that needed to come off. He would put the tools and put them in his tray and, and go off and do the job. And then he'd put them back when he was done. And his tray was always super clean. The other guy, everything was piled on his tray a foot high. And he could reach into the tray without even, he could just reach back in there without even looking and pull out whatever that he wanted just by feeling around for about a second and a half and grab it and keep on going. He didn't even have to stop. Two different completely people, but what we did have to do was make it very, very easy for them to get their job done and get everything else everything else, out of their way. Nothing that wasn't involved with building ours was anything they had to do. The least they had to do, the better. All they had to do was find it, give it to me. I just needed to hear a little bit about it, and off I went to sell it. And then everything else was very automated. Now, we talk about $100,000 shops. I'm, I, I hope I'm not stepping on like what you're going to keep talking about. No, go, man. Every shop is different, and every area is different. It's. I think there's a potential for anywhere because there's plenty of business everywhere, but that's not realistic in many other places. I was in California, much more realistic in California, but we were extremely competitive, but also the rates were higher back then. But you're talking about 20 years ago. You know, some of our clients that are in, uh, I don't know, some parts of maybe Florida where it's not as busy, some parts in Alabama, that's just not realistic because those numbers aren't real. In Illinois, it may not be part realistic in some places, but it doesn't mean that you can't achieve some very high levels of income. It all depends on your area that you're in and what your community is and what the volume ends up looking like. But you can offer technicians a very, very, very solid foundation of having income opportunities, but the shop has to provide the opportunity and they have to grasp it. There is no such thing as you work in my shop for 40 hours and you're going to make $100,000. But providing them the opportunity that you can build the 50, 60, 70 hours, that you can be, see that level of opportunity, that's what our job is, is to build the basis of which they can, they can thrive in. And some guys are animals and some guys are not. And actually, you do need to have a mix of both. You can't have, you can't have four people in the shop and all four of them be animals. For the reason, just as Jeremy was saying, there's some weeks they're not as hot as the others and the animals you feed and the rest of them are okay being somewhere in the middle. Right, Donnie? You've got it too, right? So it's not an all or nothing. It's a how do we build a system so that gives them the best opportunity.
0: Every time this man talks, it's very profound and it's very good. And I, I think what we're doing is we're stitching together Jeremy's little numbers thing, uh, Danny's perspective on, uh, on the revenue side. And I couldn't help one of the thoughts that I had while, while Danny was talking is about when you get up to that level of income and it's pretty big and pretty profound for so many people, I need to literally look at my $100,000 players as more of a partner in my business, and somebody really looking to do every move that they make is is efficient that they, they want to help, they want to be part of it, they want to build the customer experience they want to look at that vehicle not as a vehicle but, but as but, but as a customer and anything that we 're talking about here doesn 't happen tomorrow with a flip of a switch; it is part. And this guy to my left and your right, Jim Silverman, had a chance a little earlier today to get up and talk about culture. And I, I think that's got to be a big takeaway for you all. And Jim, I'd like you to drive that point as to how we build a strong culture
4: and we can make this happen. There's a couple of things that, that jump out at me. First of all, I just can I jump back to the $100 an hour, sure. $200 an hour? Yeah. Okay. Does no one here is asking you to go to your shop Monday morning and double your labor rate? Okay, so that wasn't the message, but the message is, be prepared. um, the only thing I tell people about labor rates are, I want my labor rate to everything end with a seven. If it ends with a nine uh kmart Walmart is ninety nine cents. We're not Walmart, so don't end with ninety nine cents and don't end with a nickel because it's too easy to multiply. Don't end with an even number because it's too easy to divide. No one can multiply by seven or divide. And, and therefore, it must be your legitimate exact price. So I like sevens as my last number. Great advice. That's that's a big Good. thing. And I look at my labor rate as how much money do I have to pay my technician, plus his loaded benefits, plus what I have to make out of that hourly rate, plus what my shop has to make out of that hourly rate, plus what my succession plan is going to be out of that hourly rate. That's what's my margin. And that's how I figure out the labor rate instantly. So culture. Okay, culture is huge. Um, we've got a new class going on right now. I'm not selling ATI. This is just a, I want you guys to understand this. It's called an engagement class. And we're spending a lot of time talking about engagement because it's how you engage with your employees and how you engage with your customers. And it's two different things. When Sarah was saying earlier that she likes to be texted, I like to be called, but I like a text message to follow up with what the price is. So, My culture has got to be that my 22-year-old service advisor understands the difference between texting Sarah and calling me. My culture's got to be why they come to work for me and why they stay with me. And they've got to be why they come to work for me instead of for Jeremy. Because Jeremy's younger. He's got a higher labor rate. um, He's got a beach view out of his shop. So why are they coming to me? They're coming to me because I'm going to make them pizza. I'm going to make them breakfast every Friday. I'm going to serve pizza every Wednesday. I'm going to provide health care. I'm going to provide marriage counseling, drug rehab, whatever it is that we have to do for our people. My culture is going to say, I want you here. My culture is going to be like Danny making birthday cakes for his employees. My culture is why are they here? And my culture has got to be that my guys can get along. So we do the DISC process. We do the wonderlick. Okay. on all employees. Mm-hmm. We do it for most of our clients and we watch who they are as compared to who they sit next to or who their bay is next to them. So we want culture to be communicative between the two bays. And if you've got somebody in your shop, that's turning a whole lot of hours and everyone else in the shop hates them. And you've got a six man shop and five people hate Bob. Okay. Okay. And you're afraid because Bob turns a whole lot of hours every week. What do you do? Do you put up with Bob's negative attitude and his high, high turnover? Or do you let the other guys pick up some of the thing and see what their attitude improves? Thank you so much. Good stuff.
0: Uh, so so we've, we've talked about numbers. We've talked about revenue and marketing and the, and the passion for driving new customers. And, of course, uh, culture. Sarah, I want to ask you, uh, viewing labor hours as inventory and focusing on selling the time you have available, getting all the techs and advisors focused on labor, and you know that's how we started. Jeremy started to talk about labor. You can't pay what you can't earn.
5: Absolutely. If we want to pay our technicians $100,000 a year, there has to be the work there for them to do. If the work isn't there for them to do, that's not a possibility. So if we start looking at our available hours as inventory, as like parts inventory, and making sure we're selling all of those available hours, that brings us closer to that goal of getting our technicians at $100,000 a year.
4: We, we talk about a really good mix, and the average mix in the industry is 50-50 parts to labor. Right? And so in order to have your maintain your 50% parts to labor ratio, you have to sell the fast-moving parts. In order to stock the, sell the fast-moving parts, you need to stock the fast-moving parts. So when you're doing an oil change, you need to sell windshield wiper blades with it. You need to sell the cabin air filter with it. You need to sell the fuel additive with it because all of these parts add up to get your, your ratio higher than the 50%. But you're not going to get somebody to wait an hour while you send out for wiper blades or while you send out for a cabin air filter. So we talk a lot about stocking fast-moving parts.
5: Um, I think a big part of it, too, is getting the technicians and your service advisors on the same page with that and focusing on selling those labor hours so that the work is available there to do. We do a high-performance compensation payroll program that gets technicians and service advisors on that same page. Um, It's still an hourly pay, but then there's incentives and rewards that go along with that. Your technicians are getting rewarded for continuing education, for attendance, all sorts of things that go into that and really help get those two on the same page and focus on that labor inventory being sold as inventory and that all those available hours so they can get that income
2: you know speaking to that just follow up so talk about your your labor inventory and where you land with your dollars like your your labor inventory uh, times your labor rate and then your parts uh, with your with whatever markup that you land at uh, those need to those what that ends up Needing to add up to is what, what's enough to cover your nut or what's enough to cover your shop expenses, plus being paying yourself and making sure that you have enough money to keep on moving forward. But I just want to make the point that we are talking about labor inventory, but that's not what any of your goals should be. F- selling 40 hours a week is not what you should be setting a goal for. You should be selling much, many more hours than 40 hours a week. And I would consider love, uh, and Donnie, you tell me if I'm wrong because I know I'm out of the shop. Is that a B? Is that a B level tech anymore at forty hours, or is that a C level tech?
1: You got to get that out of everybody across the shop, except for the most entry level people. <laughs> exactly. Or the most advanced diagnostician, who, to Jeremy's point, you fix that in the mix.
2: Exactly. Right. But you wouldn't have. But you wouldn't want a B level technician doing forty hours or less consistently. You'd expect wouldn't be more. Able to keep them. Exactly. Right. So when you talk about labor inventory, you've got to look at those dollars and say, "Look, this is this." 40 hours a week in by per person covers my nut. That's where you set as a baseline. But the goal, you set much higher, right? We need to be looking at selling 120%, 130% of our total inventory on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, because that's where the true profitability comes from, is beating the labor times. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, and I think that's, as a service advisor, I think it's important not to be stuck in the book. So when you ATR, actual timer repairs, it's a KPI that we're tracking now because... If you have a technician who's good, but he's just methodical and a little bit slower, you could still boost his time. You gotta have a 20% factor in when you're cooling things out to make sure you're getting the billable hours out and collecting his inventory as well. So the labor guides are just a guide, not a Bible.
0: Hey, Carm here. You know, Apex 19 is in the record books and brought the best and brightest together to create an experience like no other. Now, the big announcement for Apex 2020 is a dedicated section for the service professional. Yay! Apex will present Repair Shop HQ in its own section in 2020. So, if you earn your living in the aftermarket, Apex is for you. Sure, is fun, but you'll learn more and see more that relates to your sales growth, profits, productivity, and technology at apex and training apex will present some of the best aftermarket technician trainers as well as management trainers now regarding emerging tech apex will feature again in 2020 the latest trends that will have an impact on the service repair professional and equipment wow see feel and touch the latest tools and equipment that will bring efficiencies to your business. Mark your calendar right now for Apex 20, November 3rd through the 5th in Las Vegas. Listen here to learn all about Apex and when you can start registering. I'd like to talk about the people side of this, Donnie, about recruiting and keeping the right staff.
1: Well, yeah, I'd like to take that down to the ground floor because I think one of the things we have to start looking at now is what is going to come to us um, kids are not looking at careers as I'm going to get into something and do it for 30 years. That's just not their mode of operation. So at NASTAF, we've got a project we call Road to Great Technicians, and that is a group of like-minded automakers and aftermarket folks. Sarah's dad's involved. Jim's involved. We've got a lot of folks that are involved in this who are trying to look at how we get kids in and out of school And how competent we can make them at a level to where they're profitable when they come out of school. And what we do right now when we train technicians, we train them wide and we train them shallow. So they come out of school and I I raise baby technicians because it's my passion and I get my butt kicked all the time. So they come in and we give them a job like, let's put some tires on this car. Oh, yeah, we did that the first week of school. I don't remember any of it. Um, Just fill in the blank, whatever that operation is, because they don't get any repetition. And you know whose fault that is? All of us, because we don't bring them in to work for us in the afternoon. We don't go to the intern programs and say, hey, I will take a kid. A.S., Is gone now. It's actually been merged. That's the automotive youth education system that ASE had. It's been merged with NATEF to become the ASE Education Foundation. And that wasn't because the program was so good they had had to put them together. It was because only dealers were supporting it and they weren't doing a good job. And automakers were throwing mega millions of dollars at a program. So it was basically costing, I think we figured out at some point, $300,000 a kid. To, for the ones that made it. So here's, here's the number that scares the hell out of me. 42% of the kids that actually make it through the program and only half of them make it through the program because of a number of reasons, but mostly because we put them in programs when they shouldn't be there. 42% don't make it for the, from the, through the first two years in our shops. You know why? Because we don't know how to raise technicians. Now, part of that is is part of the education's job. We need to teach narrow and deep. They need to be able to roll out of that school, able to do a brake job, able to do an alignment, able to do all the general garden variety things that repair shops do every single day so that you can pay them more money so that they can make you money. When they come in and you're like, God, I'm paying them 15 bucks an hour and he can't even put a tire on. Go, Danny, ever, go. But what are they having them do the first
2: three months that they're there?
1: Push a damn broom there you go, boom. or work on the Lubrac. Right. The kids at USA, you know what they tell me? Because I, I get to talk to them at the regionals. You can't talk to them at nationals. Regionals say, hey, well, what's going on? What are you in? Uh, I'm, in a, I'm in Toyota's program. I'm on Nissan's program. I'm on BMW's program. What are you doing? Um, I've been working the Lubrac for two years. Right. I really would like to do something else. You know what the Subaru kids tell me? Mm-hmm. I did a timing belt last week.
2: Right.
0: There's a lot going on in the education side of our industry. And, in fact, uh, it was Jill Sa- Sanders. Jill Saunders. Jill Saunders, who was on the panel with Donnie and I and, and Chris Chesney and Kyle Holt at Apex. And we talked about this exact thing. And we, we are so worried about the mentoring that's going on in the industry. And, and she, I don't know if she said it publicly, but she told me on the side that at Toyota we figured out that we can't throw a senior tech a, as a mentor, if we don't change how we pay them, because if they were being paid flat rate that they, they, their heart wasn't into because their income was going to be hurt. I, I got to tie in. Donnie, thank you so much for bringing up the education piece. As I said earlier, I'm on as I'm, a, uh, I'm an advisor in post-secondary. Uh, here's the stats that I hear. 50 percent are churning out of the dealerships, which is why the dealerships are recruiting constantly. 24 hours a day at the school doing anything that they can to engage the the students at at career day, uh, donating stuff because they still don't get it and they still don't understand. The independents aren't showing up the way they should, but also the freshmen who are starting, 50% are, we're not graduating them at the end of two years. So there's a problem with education, there's a problem in us assimilating them into the industry and the road to great technicians is probably one of the most important programs that we can have and i want to share with you that a group of independents in my town got together and said to the school you have the chrysler program and the ford asset program you've got subaru u can we as independents have a corporate program and you know what they told us yes so in fall of 2020 This group decided to come up with a vision and a mission and a set of ethics to bring in the independence so that the school can see that we're ready to have the the intern program and hire these kids. So they're creating an independent corporate program at the school. So I challenge everyone it can be done. And there's a lot of different educational programs that are going out there. I know ASCCA in San Diego has got something going on. So we have to. We cannot, as an industry, you cannot, as a shop owner, ignore that the the, the the young people, and as Donnie explains, how we actually have to get them and give them challenging work. And also, one other thing we have to allow them to do is we have to allow them to break things. Because everyone in this room, you can't put a number on it, but you've all broken things that have probably cost you six figures in your interesting career to make things right. And if we don't let some of our young people do that, we want to maybe be there and say, hey, I know exactly what's going to happen in about 10 minutes, so I'll be there, so maybe they won't do it, or maybe they're about ready to break it, and I'm going to stop it from them because who wants to pay for it,
4: whatever. But we have to allow them to figure it out on their own. Well, I was just going to go into the ASCCA thing just a little bit better. Uh, The um, Kiamonga, I know I'm going to say it wrong, Community College in uh, San Diego. It's in the eastern part of the county. Um, Our ASCCA chapter of San Diego, which is, I think, Chapter 24, put together an ASCCA program. Now, for those of you that don't know what ASCCA is, ASA is not very large in Colorado, in California. We have our own. It's the Automotive Service Centers of California. Uh, I'm proud to be affiliated with them. I thought I had that turned off. That's
1: them calling right now.
4: Um, (laughs) It is. (laughs) Um, I am proud to be uh, involved in in that group as well. But we rolled out the program. It's taken a year to get it up and running. The uh, course material was written by instructors at the college and by shop owners in the chapter And they wrote the course material together. It includes internship programs so that the students leave the college and come to school and come in the afternoon to the shops. And they get college credit for it. And because it's part of the university, the university covers the workers' comp part. And that was the big deal um, is being able to cover insurance on the students. And that was the the main thing. But they're actually going to call it the ASCCA degree. And it's to drive people right to the independent part of the market um, Thank you for
0: that. I did a podcast with the, with the leaders of that uh, maybe a year ago now. Benny. Here's the reason that I did, did my little rant here just a second ago before I gave it over to Jim. Is when we sit down with our people and they say, hey, the dealers said I could earn. And when we say, so, so what could I earn working for an independent? Oh, my God, they tell me I only have to work on one platform and I've got to work on all of these different cars here. Is the pay any bigger or better? If we don't get the shops in our industry earning more, and understanding what the kind of wage needs to be paid for what we're asking our people to do and to learn. But, you know, the growth of augmented reality and all this interesting stuff. I I want to go back to something Sarah
1: said earlier today, that we forget all too often, and that's why these kids are disenfranchised. They want to be part of something that matters. Just like everybody else does, only it's more in the top five for them. Yeah. It's not number number about a paycheck. a paycheck.
5: Number one is they want to do something that matters, the value.
1: And so if you're not building how you work with these kids at that level, they're not engaged. So, um, yeah, so, so the technician shortage. I don't think it's true. It's not. You know what there is? Way too many bays run by way too many people who don't know how to run a business. I'm going to get my ass kicked before I get out of here. But at any rate. That's what, that's mean, what I think I the truth is. <laughs>
0: uh, he's, you're right. You're right.
1: And so therefore, some really good technicians who have no business running one, who could be making good money for themselves, open a business because they were working for a guy who had no business running a business. And I'm one of them. I can run this little association because it's easy to put a budget together. Running a repair business is damn hard. It's a lot harder than most other businesses because you've got multiple disciplines happening at one time that you have to organize and run. And running that well means you have to get your butt either out of the shop or have a professional manager that you trust to do it. And so these techs are out there and they're all spread out and they're all empty in people's wallets to not fix cars because they've, and I talked to some of you in the back there, they've lost their chops. Because they don't have time to go to school anymore, because all they can do is figure out how they're going to make payroll and pay the taxes and all of that. It's not it's not an existence. It's not professionalism anymore. It's survival. And the cars are just going to go right past them. So I told you I'd say some things today that would probably depress you and make you angry. But that one has to be addressed because the technician
0: shortage won't exist if the good techs are all together working where they need to be. No kidding. And, and, and I think about a succession plan. I, I talked to some guys about five years about this and said, I want to go to my great friends who are struggling to run a business, who aren't having any fun, and I want to ask them to join this group. And, and I want to buy their business. I want to pay them for their their customer list. But I also want to give them a piece of the action that they can keep their customers coming back. And and I remember there was a guy who said, if I could just do alignments all day long, I'd be the happiest guy in the world. If I could make at least what I was making now, and which really wasn't a lot of money you see and so if we've got these really well-running shops and you can bring in the talent that isn't good at at being an entrepreneur and a ceo but a talent with their hands and their bays there's some magic there
1: yeah i would say you've probably done uh, you have to have talked to brian some oh yeah absolutely i've interviewed brian listen to brian yeah brian takes an underachieving shop and makes it this five-star customer service. He's in Colorado, so that's why I know Brian real well. But he makes it into a five-star customer service environment where they fix cars the first time, and what he buys the shop on is the
2: staff. Donnie's right. Talking again about the, the younger audiences coming in, and the statistic is, and like I said, Donnie could not be more right. The statistic in AS, from ASC that was true, at least I know for a fact, three years ago, was that there was less than 3% of the the pool of technicians we have that are coming in that are under the age of 21 years old. That is an enormously small number. But he's absolutely right that the technicians exist here. They're just not technicians anymore. The issue that comes, it is a challenge that comes as the younger people do approach into our industry, and they couldn't be more right that they don't know what industry they want to be in because they are far less mature And you know, I know the boomers will say the same thing about my generation that we say about the millennials that we say about the Gen Zs. We're also going to say the same thing about the others. But truly, 18 is the new 16. If you have teenagers, then you know this is be a fact. They're 15, 16 years old now is where the emotional emotional level of what the 18-year-olds are now just because of the way things have changed. So the people who are coming in truly as 20-year-olds, that's really the new 17, 18.
1: Well, you know, if you look at South Korea... They don't even graduate from high school until they're 19.
2: And and that would make a lot more sense. And,
1: And their parents don't expect them to be viable in the industry and the world in which they get involved in until they're 29.
2: Well, I I prefer not to be twenty-nine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's a parent talk. Right, yeah,
2: right. I prefer not to be twenty-nine, but there's a lot of truth to that. I mean the reality is we're not seeing them leave the house now at twenty-one years old and be all on their own. So the reality of us having conversations is about picking our industry or picking our vocation when they're eighteen, 18, 19 years old is very, very difficult. Nonetheless, this is a great vocation to choose and a great path to be on. But we're having that dithering back and forth of decisions just because of where they're at emotionally. But I, I, back to what you said before, you just have to ask, right? You still need to either present the idea that they can join the industry in the first place, and we're doing a better job at that, but we got a long way to go.
1: Well, and we have to start looking at fifth grade as the point at which we start identifying tactile learners and identifying them and saying, you are not stupid, you're different. Mm-hmm. If we do that, then it doesn't matter what tech career they go into, mm-hmm. If we can teach them in a way that they can put their hands on stuff. I started doing in my technical classes, I give them something to play with. When I teach for Gates, they give me a bunch of water pump bearings. They learn better when they're holding something. These fidget things and all that. So there you go. Identify the tactile learners and then let them develop. Give them STEM. Give them opportunities to say, man, it's really fun to work with my hands. And mom and dad, I'm not going to college.
2: And amen to college is not the answer for everybody,
4: right? So how do we start this? How do we fix this, uh, this issue and where do they come from? Um, is anybody talking to high school students? Has anybody thought about talking to high school students? Good, a bunch of hands went up. Okay, so, so I had an opportunity at Auto Mechanica NACE last year to speak with high school students. We don't deal with high school students at our company. Why did I do it? Because I'm stupid. Um, I did it just because somebody said, will you speak? And I said, yes. And so I had the privilege of being in front of high school students. And I asked a question that was really cool. And, And so it started out with, because they were there, they had the opportunity to just get out of school, so they went. But I said, you know, there's an alternative to flipping burgers as your first job. You can work in the automotive industry. As your first job, why flip burgers? Go to a parts store. Ask them if you can help stock their parts. Can you drive their delivery truck? Can you sweep their floors? Can you go to a shop and learn how to change oil? Can you help shuttle cars around the lot? Can you do things to drive customers home or to visit people at the front counter to be a receptionist? There are accounting needs in in shops. There are marketing needs in shops in the automotive industry. There are talent people needed in shops to do technical things. And then I asked... In Atlanta, right? High percentage of females in the room. I said, how many of you have sculptured nails? And about two-thirds of them raised their hands. Okay, the person that painted those nails can paint a car. Takes the same talent or less to paint a car. If you can sculpture your nails, if you can paint nails, why wouldn't you paint a car? So you can look at it from the collision side. But and wait a just, minute.
0: Didn't she have to have a license to do that? As a matter of fact... Nails. <laughs> Yeah, the nails. To
4: do nails, you have to be
1: licensed. Not the car, for crying yeah. out loud. That's just a 4,000 pound ballistic missile. Don't worry about that.
0: <laughs> I you I, was knew I for would incite a riot.
4: Oh, uh, we, had, we had this going on last week at the board meeting at ASCCA, too. So, yes, it is. You do have to have a license to do that. So, I said, anybody have nails? You can paint a car. I was just putting out the message that they didn't have to flip burgers, that they could come to the automotive industry. Why did I do that? At ATI, we don't work with students. We only work with shop owners. Why did I do that? I did it just to help the industry. I did it to promote the industry. And so if if you are not promoting your industry, and I'm not going to ask people about how much money you give. I have a very good friend that I know funds a scholarship from his company. Um, I'm not looking to give anybody acclimates or talk about things. If you give money to different associations and you're you're funding scholarships or you're giving to a scholarship fund Are you helping with it? More power to you. If you're not doing it, please think about it because these scholarships are important. Um, Think about some of the things, the Mike Rowe Foundation, um, where we we give to students and we're trying to help people grow um, and, and to be technical students. But definitely don't be afraid to go talk and volunteer at the high schools. Those high school students, even if they don't have an automotive program, which it's great if we can talk to an automotive program, but if they don't, any industrial, any high school, they're looking for speakers. Those teachers would love to have somebody come in and talk to their kids for an hour.
0: Yeah, about the rolling piece of metal and plastic that has line, a million lines of code in it. I mean, so it it's fascinating pay it where back. we're at. Pay it back. Thank That's you, all. Jim. Appreciate that. Oh, by the way, Seth Thorson, is that who you were talking about? It has a $25,000 scholarship? It was, not, it was not. I've done a, a bunch of shows with Seth. Many, I think a lot of people here may know Seth's name. Uh, and he started the, uh, the, the Thorson Family Scholarship uh, with a $25,000 endowment. I, uh, I took some notes before I got here because I do research wh- whenever I have to go out to, to get our discussion to the point where it's at, the reasons uh, to keep great talent, and, and how do we build the business that we can ultimately pay the right wages to sustain the business. And we've do, we've talked about that. I did it in my keynote, and we talked about it this morning, and we continue to talk about it here. It's training, it's systems, it processes. It's a, a obviously profitability, the environment, the kept facility, marketing, environment, culture, all that stuff. And, and then I said, well, if we get to a point in, in this discussion that we can literally try to put some call to actions out there and say, okay, where do I start? How could I, how could I start engaging in, in moving my people into a pay plan that grows and steps its way there? I wrote down a bunch of stuff that we could put in as elements in a pay program. And so I ask everyone on my panel to please chime in as I start my list off with ASE testing, training, efficiency, and I'll let you complete my list. What other tactics, Jay, that we can use to build the compensation plan?
3: I look at things that are going to put money in the bank tomorrow. So on Monday morning, if you have 10 cars, how are you going to generate $10,000 in sales? One of the first ways is the cars have to be properly inspected. So when you think of your top producing techs, and I'm sitting up here listening to all this, and I'm thinking about when I worked at Volkswagen, we had 34 techs but five of them made over $100,000 a year. And those five technicians had a couple key traits. Number one, every single car got a full inspection on it. And those guys were experts on those cars. So they knew what to look for, how to point out the issues that were coming up, and then document it. And then the last thing that they had was they fixed the car right the first time. So I would definitely say one of those is you have to have completed inspections. And I, good. I, and, and also, I wrote down comebacks
0: which goes to fix the car right the first time. So if you're tracking a comeback factor.
4: Okay, so can I jump on Jeremy's courtesy inspections? Here goes a 30-second or one-minute class. Consistent courtesy inspections. When you have a customer come in the shop and you make an estimate on his car and he can't afford the whole work, he says, well, I'll get that done the next time. So the next time he comes in six weeks from now, he gets these other things done and he says, well, what about my front-end alignment? Oh, it looked good. Wait a minute. Did you lie to me today when you told them it didn't need a front alignment or six weeks ago when you told them it did? So your technicians, you've got your guy that's your front end guy. You get your guy that likes the strut, You get the guy that likes the AC and they do their inspections and that's what they see each time. So I propose that you bring your technicians into the shop on a Wednesday night and have pizza and you put three cars up in the air. And you give them all a DVI or you give them all your courtesy inspection, whichever you use, and you want everybody to inspect every car. And then you sit down and you eat your pizza, only one slice, you don't let them have it all at once. Um, And you look at the inspections and if they're not the same, they inspect them again. And if they're not the same, they inspect them again until they're all done. And when they're all the same, they can go home. And then two weeks from now, You bring them in again, you put three more cars up in the air, and you go through the inspection process again. And if they're all the same, then it was a really short meeting. And you make that a a once-a-month thing where you're going to do it just as a refresher, and and you do that. And then So you've got them all doing the inspections, and then you do a courtesy inspection audit, which means you, the owner, are looking at your service advisor. Did you do 100% courtesy inspections? And if your service advisor does 100% courtesy inspections or your techs do 100%, um, and then the service advisor is making the recommendations properly on the things, you'll have enough work there for your guys to turn their work, and they'll make their $100,000, and the inspections will be consistent. And there you go, Jeremy.
0: Any other contributions to what a an element of the pay plan would be? So uh,
2: the, the most successful pay plan that, uh, that I think I developed – that uh, it took a while to evolve, by the way. And um, you know, this is a, if you want to talk to me after the after this whole thing about the whole story, I'll give it to you. I will give you the super short version of it. Um, we learned how to split up their income between base income and opportunistic income, and that all came from if if y'all remember about. Uh, a long time ago, there was the tool leasing program where you could lease tools back. It was like a lumberjack thing at one point in time, and they were leasing back their tools, and you could pay them for the tools rather than paying for their labor, and you save money on – they save taxes, you save taxes. IRS uh, you know, went after that whole model. We were in the middle of it all. It ended up being something that didn't cost us any money, but we were in the middle of actually developing that technology in that kind of way around – Uh, getting putting more money in the technicians pockets i i've been in maybe it doesn't look like it but i've been in this industry much longer than i look because because i have i have been through the most difficult parts of growing an auto repair shop because we were we had to be on the leading edge of it being in the place we were southern california five mile radius over 100 shops and 30 dealerships and we're talking about 20 years ago uh, much less now. So it was com- unbelievably competitive. We had to find ways to get this done. So what I found out was, is that the best way to pay my technicians were to split up their time. One is in California, you do have to pay for overtime, regardless of the time they spend. If you require them to be there the 40 hours, then they have to be paid 40 hours. It, unless you make them a, a employee at will, then they can choose to come and go from the business, but this is all California legal mumbo jumbo. So they had to be paid overtime in order to stay legal. Number one, the difference was is I was paying them. I was paying them an hourly wage. Let's just I'm using the numbers to just make it even. We were paying them an hourly wage of twenty dollars an hour. That was their base page. They, they pay, base pay. They got paid that no matter what cars were in the building or not. The base can be empty. You can fire a cannon, not hit anything. If I required them to be there from eight to five, they got paid the $20 an hour and any overtime that was required, they got paid the overtime on the clock. That made my legal requirements fulfilled as far as California law goes. I suspect it's the same thing here in Illinois and other places. Generally, if you're legal in California, you're usually in pretty good shape everywhere else. Then their bonus rate was based on the amount of hours that they could bill. So they would, they would be in my building for 41 hours, say one hour overtime, right? So whatever that calculates out to. And then they would be paid their bonus rate, which was their flag hour rate. So if you flagged 55 hours in that 41-hour window, then the bonus rate was times 55 hours. And the bonus rate carried a a set of multipliers that after they went over 40 hours, I was now in my more profitable area of labor billing. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. So there's no reason for not sharing him more of my profits as he continues to drive through more hours that he bills. So... Some of my technicians, there was nothing for them to be at normally at 70 hours. They were upset if they were under 70 hours because that's the, that's the points of their income they wanted to stay at. And they would drive through 80 hours on a regular basis because they were knocking it out with nearly zero comebacks because they were incented to do it. The split met all my legal requirements, and I allowed them to bill on opportunistic income, and splitting those dollars up made it easy for me to develop an incentive system that was based on the flagged hours and not just their time spent in the building. Does that make sense? Now, there's a lot of other complexities that go along with it, but that's basically how I divided it out. And I found that the technicians, that I, the recruiting opportunities for those technicians coming in, number one, the people who were on flat rate thought it was the best thing since sliced bread because what if the shop had a bad week? You could offer somebody a great pay, uh, but one week with nothing to do, well, that takes the numbers, you average that out, well, they're not making as much money anymore. So they were going to get paid something by being required to be in the building. And the guys that were coming from shops that they were getting played on flag hour, they thought this was the greatest thing to slice bread because the way I had developed the opportunistic income is after the 40 hours and my nut was paid for, I was sharing with them a larger piece of the profitability, which made it a huge incentive for them to drive past that 60 and 70 hour point. Does this make sense? Oh, yeah. So for them, for the technicians that were capable of hitting those larger hour points, they were excited about it because they knew they could make a killing and why shouldn't they? They, they were driving me past my profit points. I'm making a lot more money after 40 hours. What I was saying before about your labor inventory at 40 hours, everything's paid for. So now we're just making more money, and why not share it with them?
1: I would add something that um, Bill Haas and I put together that I used in my shop. One of the things when you're transitioning into that type of a program from a straight-up flat rate, because that's gone with us, was I had some other issues in the shop that were annoying me. They were messy I mean, we had requirements of them, but they were still messy. They wouldn't get cores returned. They'd be Mm -hmm. sitting all over the shop. So I said, I am going to have a shop hygiene benefit Mm -hmm. here because I'm going to walk through here and inspect it. And every day the entire shop is either going to get or not get something added onto their paycheck based upon that place being clean when I come back here. And um, it didn't take very long. That was Bill's idea. I just implemented a way to make it work. Sure. Right. So, um, so that worked really well for us. And it also helped us. We were moving into, into that program because they said, well, you know, now I don't have time. I'm on flat rate. I don't have time. I'm like, I'm not buying that excuse anymore because now those indirect jobs that you do as lean calls them, picking up, writing a repair order, all that kind of stuff. I'm paying you to do those. That's in your flat bay. Right. Leaving the shops a mess is not acceptable, right. but that, that got him an incentive to get that piece done.
0: I really do want to jump a little bit more into lean and how it could come into a factor of, of pay. But I really appreciate where this is going on this, on this whole pay program. But I, I need to say something about the invisible paycheck, and I want to set that up in the air just in case we want to talk about it. If anyone is sitting in here and taking some notes and saying, uh, what's in my invisible paycheck today? And if you add it up, you may very possibly not be as far off as you think you are. Your people may not know it. And let let me just bring this to the top of the surface. Healthcare, whatever your contribution rate is. Retirement, if you have one. If you don't, I think it's a deal breaker. Paid training, if you're paying for training, and I believe you should, and I believe everybody on this panel believes you should. That's in the, in the invisible paycheck. Paid ASE tests is in that. Tools that you could possibly reward at a certain time of the year. Bonuses on the truck. FICA. Dental. Paid time off. Uniform. Vacation. Have I covered enough? If you add that up now, you may be surprised because it's not about the $100,000 cash that they'll spend in a six months. It's about the package. And so I just wanted to lay that out so that you're, I don't want you to be suffering in a, how do I ever get started? What's my vi- invisible paycheck? And how do I start the opportunistic uh, rewards that can literally lift the paycheck up? And, and Danny said it so well, if I'm making money, boy, am I ever happy to give some of it away because it's family. How many of you can literally say today that the people that I work with are family? They spend a third of their life at your place. And, 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 and I think that goes to the culture and it goes to a lot of things.
4: Your invisible paycheck is extremely important that your employees know about the invisible paycheck because if, if somebody's spouse hears that he's got a job offer at $75,000 a year or $100,000 a year at XYZ Company, and he's only making X amount of dollars an hour, she says, oh, my God, look, that's because all she sees or all the spouse sees is what you bring home. You're already making $75,000 a year. You're just not bringing that much home. So, so you got to sometimes remind them at least once or twice a year of what they're getting in the invisible paycheck because they assume that that money that they're getting is so much less than that when in fact they're getting the same or more.
1: But you know, the other thing is don't forget that invisible paycheck is also an expense that you have. And when you're calculating what your income is, you cannot forget that. People say, oh, I'm only paying the tech 20 bucks an hour. That's not true. Mm -hmm. So you have to think about that too when you're setting your budget. And
2: remind them for sure, I 100% agree, agree, Careful with the millennials, because to them, it's an expectation.
5: I was just going to say that. That yeah. invisible paycheck is an expectation. It's an
2: expectation. 100%. It's not something you're doing for them extra. Nope. It's a 100% expectation. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Sorry to take away your thunder on that.
0: <laughs> no, you nailed it. I think we've had a, a great dialogue on 100K. Uh, are, are there any questions for the panel? So here's the question. Is there, a, is there a program that would guide us through an apprentice or an internship program? There are a number of really good
1: apprenticeships around the country. Most of the people that put those together are only too happy to share what they do with you. John Gustafson, uh, an ASCCA member, uh, they've got a training uh, building bigger than most people's shops. Um, That's one example. But there's an online little piece that you can put on your phone. It's a mentoring program that's by SP2. And Kyle has, Kyle Holt, that is the manager of SP2, uh, has talked to to CARM uh, amongst other places. But it is set up really cool so that the school can say, the students learn this. And then the mentor, which I'm going to talk about real quickly, then the mentor can say, Yeah, I think you've got that down. Or no, we need a little bit more work on this because the real world and the school can be different, right? And so this gives an opportunity for the school to receive feedback, for the student to receive feedback, and for the mentor to have an idea of what it is they're supposed to know when they walk in. Let me talk about mentors real quick. Here's what we've learned. Jill Saunders, you've already brought it up, said, yeah, we don't really like to put a master technician on there. Their reason started out differently, But here's what we've found in the road to great technicians talking about this with all these different entities. The best mentor is the person who just finished learning what you're doing, because the greatest way to learn is to have to teach. Somebody said that this morning. Yes, I did. So therefore, if you've got to teach somebody under you directly, just one level under you, this is how we do a break job here. You get culture. And you get that person to solidify their knowledge at the same time. And
0: it's not always your senior man. And
1: usually they're not very good at or being woman, mentors or anyway. Or
0: woman, I mean, yeah. It's not your senior, most senior person. Well, that's got to be our mentor. He's been here for 30 years. he will be able to teach him everything. That would be a mistake.
2: But it, then we would have mid-level people who were actually had an ego, and they would have confidence, and they would get loyalty, right? and they would have, and they would like have an opportunity to pass along the things that they would learn. And then they'd get self-confidence. And then we're where we'd be.
0: I'm proud. <laughs> I know. We wouldn't, like we wouldn't want that. Matters. We'd no, be making too no, much money. No, no We'd
1: no, have no. a happy, happy group. <laughs> and Sarah just said it. And it goes back to now I've got a mission that I believe in because it's my job now to teach the new kid.
5: Yeah, I'm doing something that matters.
0: I, I, I know a bunch of people that have uh, apprentice programs. Uh, just email me. I gave you my card earlier, please, and, and ask me to put you in touch with some people. I happen to find out that a major supplier in the industry is coming out with a full-blown, locked-up, up down apprentice program for their, their customers. And it'll be announced, I guess, within a month. So all I'm saying is I think the industry finally... Said we have to help. We've got to do some things, and I think I think we're going to find it's going to be the the new the new slice bread coming up here in the next year because it's it's so critical, so important. Let me remind you all: Jeremy O'Neill, Donny Seifer, Sarah Frazier, Danny Sanchez, and Jim Silverman. Thanks for being on board to listen and learn from the premier automotive aftermarket podcast. Until next time.